Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest is going to be Dr. Charles Lippi. He's a retired professor. He taught for a while at Clemson and then at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And he's now the organist at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Charleston. Professor Lippi is probably the best recognized historian of religion in the American South. And today we're going to talk about the topic, how the Civil War transformed religion in South Carolina. I'll have that conversation with Chuck Lippy, but first, your NPR news break. With me in the Scanna studio today is Professor Charles H. Lippy. He is retired from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga as Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies Emeritus. His present occupation is not in teaching, but it's in music. He's the organist at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Charleston. He is the authority on religion in the American South. He was the editor of the Encyclopedia of Religion in the South, and he wrote a wonderful little book on religion in South Carolina. And what we're going to talk about today is a topic that he's been very much interested in, and it's appropriate 150 years after the Civil War, how the Civil War transformed religion in South Carolina. Chuck, welcome to the journal. Thank you. It's good to be here, Walter. All right. How did the Civil War transform religion in South Carolina? Well, the first uh, thing I would lift up, actually, is something that most of us probably know in the back of our minds, but not in the front, and that is that it radically transformed the character of worship, and that prior to the Civil War, a good bit of worship was actually biracial. Uh, Probably from the middle of the 18th century on, when white folks uh, began to realize that converting African Americans to Christianity would produce what they thought would be better slaves, there had been efforts to bring folks together uh, for for worship. And by the 19th century, uh, churches were adding what we called slave balconies and that sort of thing. And so that uh, you had... Uh, folks from from both races attending the same services, hearing the same sermons, singing the same hymns. And after the war, there was a mass exodus of, of blacks from those congregations across the board. It didn't matter what the denomination was. In fact, in 1860, were not a majority of the major Protestant denominations African-Americans? Uh, particularly among the Baptists and the Methodists. That's that's certainly true. Bethel United Methodist today in uh, Bethel in Charleston had about uh, 2,500 members. Over 2,000 of them were black, and they all left. And the same was true of First, First Baptist here in Columbia. It was a large congregation, but it was a black majority. Yes, Congregation. Yes. And of course, even under those circumstances, uh, prior to, to the, the exodus of, of African Americans from those biracial communities, the African Americans had been denied positions of leadership. They'd been denied uh, positions of, of power and authority. They were expected to uh, wait, for example, at the celebration of the Lord's Supper till all white folks had received uh, communion before even even those who were not slaves were were offered communion. So there was there was racism, but it was biracial worship. You're talking about biracial worship, but very briefly, the largest church in South Carolina was the AME Church in Charleston, which after the Denmark Vesey plot in the 1820s was destroyed by order of the city fathers. And some churches, notably the Episcopal churches and the Presbyterian churches, sometimes had reading rooms or associated congregations that were 
African Americans sometimes worshipped without white folks there. They weren't supposed to. That's the other, another piece of the the, the larger picture, and that is um, you still had African American folk gathering on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a very different worship life and a very different uh, expression of worship than they did in the churches. On the plantations, for example, you still had folks gathering at night in the the brush arbors and so on, uh, singing songs of of freedom that that gave birth ultimately to the spiritual. Uh, So there there was something going on that white folks did not see But let's face it, uh, the white folks realized that when African Americans gathered, uh, if the emotions got aroused, this could lead to another revolt and rebellion, and they wanted to assert their power and control and authority. Um, But you mentioned the AME. Uh, One of the things that did happen after the Civil War, when you had this exodus of blacks from the the majority, even though they'd been the majority from white-controlled groups, the AME, AME Zion, Northern Methodists. Uh, one person actually said there was an invasion of, of folks that came into the state to set up all black churches Northern, and all black Northern Presbyterians. Northern Presbyterians. And this gives us also forays into education, for example, Allen, Benedict, Claflin, all of those are founded by by groups that that really plant themselves much more firmly in, in the the South, in South and in South Carolina after the Civil War than they were before the Civil War. Even denominations like Episcopalians were very heavily African American. They were barely a white majority. But the Episcopal Church in South Carolina actually published a catechism for slaves to teach them what they wanted them to learn and how they wanted them to learn. Uh, That in part was because, as I said, going back actually to the mid-18th century, slave owners at that time had realized that, that you could use Christianity, you could use religion as a tool uh, that might uh, increase the the productivity and obedience, if you will, of the uh, of the enslaved population, uh, with with hopes of some kind of salvation or heavenly life afterward. But I've got a hunch, you know, that uh, slave folks were not fooled by any of that. Well, there was a lot of emphasis on the New Testament: "Slaves obey your masters." Not a whole lot dealing with Genesis or Exodus. This is true, and particularly the emphasis fell on the the New Testament book of First Peter, uh, which, uh, when you have the the reference to slaves being obedient to their masters, that's the one place in the New Testament even where there's not a corresponding statement about the responsibility of slave masters to, to their slaves. So that became a particular favorite. But the you mentioned that I was the organist at St. Mark's in, in Charleston. That is one of the groups, actually, that was formed right after the Civil War as an all-black congregation of Episcopalians. His first service was yeah. Easter Sunday of 1865. St. Luke's here in Columbia is exactly the same situation. So, as you said earlier, the big difference, one of the big differences is after the Civil War, religion becomes pretty segregated. And the the division on racial lines and worship continues down to the present time. There are precious few multiracial congregations in, in the South, anywhere, actually, uh, today. You're the organist at a church that does have a a biracial congregation, correct? It, it is now, yes, and a lot of that has to do with changing demographics in, in the city of Charleston, actually. Uh, our, our parish right now is about 50-50 uh, in terms of its composition. Many of the non-traditional churches in the South some of these megachurches have biracial congregations. Well, the, the, the megachurch phenomenon in the, of our own day uh, and the evangelical style that goes with it has 
uh, had an appeal that has become once again a, a biracial appeal, in part because of the enthusiasm that's generated uh, in, in that particular style of worship. Okay. All right, so the Civil War resulted in segregated worship. And how does that play out over the next 100 years? Well, as I suggested a minute ago, Walter, um, I believe pretty strongly that because religion has been so important in Southern culture and Southern life, having segregated churches and segregated worship is what helped build a segregated society that lasted until uh, well into the, the 20th century. So at least until the civil rights movement, uh, the fact that, that we had segregated churches was something that that led uh, folks to view all of society and all of the culture as drawn on racially segregated lines. Wasn't it uh, Martin Luther King who said the most segregated place in the American South, it's 9 o'clock on Sunday morning? Well, 11 o'clock, actually. Oh, but... okay. <laughs> and he, he's, he's quoting Benjamin Mays, actually, oh, when he okay. says that. Uh, but that's still true. If you go around uh, uh, most congregations in the South, you find very few that are, are, are racially integrated even today, or multiracial or multiethnic even. Okay. Well, clearly, though, the the war had other influences on, on, on Southern society. How did white Southerners cope with the idea that they had prayed to a god for victory and it ended in defeat? Well, this leads to another point I, that I'm going to be um, making when I give my talk later. And that is that uh, it's really in the post-war years that we create, I think, uh, the the image of the of the old South as being a place of uh, gentility and purity and so on. And white Southerners are are kind of desperate for something to hold on to to give uh, give their own history some kind of mythic foundation. It comes through, for example, particularly in areas of gender, uh, the role of women. Uh, and that actually is another way in which religion changes after the Civil War in subtle ways. But the the sort of myth of, of uh, uh, Southern womanhood and the, the purity of, of, of Southern women, along with what Charles Reagan Wilson has called uh, the the religion of the lost cause. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about uh, <laughs> baptized in the blood. Yeah, uh, baptized, baptized in blood. In blood. Uh, Charles's book of many years ago, uh, because we we try to create a a past to give so that that defeat becomes victory in its own way and um, becomes perhaps. Uh, uh, a, a way of saying that while we may have lost in empirical terms, we've not lost in 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 the larger sense of the word. You see that actually not so much in in South Carolina. To me, the epitome of that uh, is in the state where I lived to, in between my times in South Carolina, namely Tennessee. Uh, the University of the South in Suwannee is almost a monument to the civil religion of the uh, of the South where we make uh, the white Confederate war heroes almost uh, demigods and, and, and figures of worship. And the, we look back on and create a South that never really existed uh, in terms of values, in terms of a, a culture of gentility. Uh, and that, that's the South that becomes, if you will, the, the South of, of, of popular culture and popular memory but may have never been quite what it was all about in daily life. Well, it's certainly the South that appeared in Gone with the Wind. Which is, of course, a perfect example of, 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 a, of a mythic South that may not have quite been anything like reality. Well, you mentioned that the role of women in religion changed after the Civil War. How? Well, the, perhaps the most striking way, actually, is that a number of, of 
churches, denominations, which were left without adequate clergy to, to serve them for a number of years. There's a decimation of clergy and loss of clergy as a result of the war. Uh, but, but, uh, let's just, why was that? Were they killed in the war? Is this, is this because many, particularly with, let's say, small Baptist or Methodist or even Presbyterian congregations, being a minister was sort of a secondary job? Well, in, in some cases, they went off in military chaplaincy and lost their lives. In some cases, they actually left the area. They, they left the region. And th there's a whole problem of, of trying to create uh, and rebuild institutions to train clergy after the war because the, the war was, a, was so devastating uh, in terms of its impact on almost every uh, cultural and economic institution. But women especially, uh, as they're being put on pedestals by by the white men, start forming – this is when they start forming their own missionary societies and organizations like that, that on the surface look to be one thing, but like so many other things, uh, they're also something else. Uh, I love uh, the stories of some of them that were founded, for example, supposedly to fund – parsonages and and so on for missionaries in the West, but the women are actually channeling their money into anti-lynching efforts and, and things of that sort. The one group that stands out that I wish we knew more about in South Carolina uh, that may exemplify more than any other the changing role of women is the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union which is founded actually in 1874. It's a northern group, but by the early 1880s, it has over 60 uh, affiliates in the, the state of South Carolina, some of them uh, all African-American, but the majority all white. And they become particularly threatening because these are organized by women, they're led by women, and they're not under male control. Uh, and they are not accountable to men. So even, for example, Southern Methodist bishops uh, get uh, a, a little bit hot under the collar about the presence of the WCTU, although they want to support the cause of prohibition and temperance uh, because they cannot control. So you've got two things going on at the same time. You've got trying to... to create an, a, an image of, of Southern womanhood as pure and, and spotless, undefiled and spiritual and lifting women up. You've got women who are, are resisting that and undermining that in their own way, laying the foundation for a, a lot of, of later activity that doesn't materialize for another century. And once again, the racial question comes into play here because in some ways it's the, the, the black women's groups that are facing a double whammy, if you will, um, because they are trying to uh, take on roles for themselves where they are not accountable to black men in a culture where white men are trying to make black men still keep them under their control. So they're, they're struggling not only to have uh, a voice of their own within the black community, a voice within the larger community. Well, and of course, for many years, the state headquarters of the Women's Christian Temperance Union was here in Columbia on Richland Street, looking right across at the governor's mansion. Well, and it was a popular cause, actually, because, uh, and again, it goes, it fits the what we suggested earlier with the, the creation of a particular image of the Old South, and that is that uh, when you no longer had slavery legal, how could you still create some kind of racial distance and racial separation? So much of the propaganda actually was to, to suggest that that it was African Americans who were more likely to misuse uh, alcoholic beverages and so on, so you needed to control and regulate them. You wanted to have alliances with political power to do that. 
And yet, we certainly know that the temperance movement was, what shall I say, um, it was hardly supported in practice by a lot of of white men. What you're you're looking at at the, at the temperance movement in South Carolina or in the South, in the North, it was class because it was the Irish and the immigrants that were the. Oh yes, the, absolutely. Uh, I can remember seeing wonderful newspaper letters in in New York papers and saying, "You want to close our neighborhood tavern, but you don't." Talk about your fancy clubs downtown, which serve alcohol. And we forget the extent of alcohol abuse among white men in the post-Bellum South Carolina. That's an issue that really has not been discussed because a lot of that abuse had to do with veterans who had post-traumatic stress and that's the way they coped with their war experience. Uh, the letters are there. There have been studies of Union veterans now in recent times about post-traumatic stress, but no organized study of Southern veterans because there was no government operation from which to draw statistics. Well, the one actually can go to things like uh, death certificates and, and uh, documents of that sort. I was at a conference in, in May, actually, when someone gave a, gave a presentation, and I nearly fell out of my chair when one of the places that he lifted up was Spartanburg County. And in the years, uh, the post-Bellum era, the number one cause of death among white men in Spartanburg County was alcohol abuse. Wow. <laughs> and And how far does that post-1865 period go, did he... In his talk, he had taken it up to almost to about the time of World War One. So we're we're talking about a fifty-year period. Yes. Then. Yes. Okay. So, it, but by that time, it's not just folks who are veterans. This is the mill community. It's the mill community, and you're giving me, by the way, a wonderful segue into another point I want to make. Okay. Uh, and that is the development of the mill communities in uh, the post-bellum era uh, brings another feature, another dimension to the religious culture of South Carolina because I would suggest that it creates, if you will, the the environment which allows for Pentecostalism to take deep root in, in South Carolina ultimately. Now, I've given you the segue. Let's continue that. All right. Uh, for many years, we've known that, that the mill communities, as they developed, you had the, the company store, the company housing that was where workers lived. Um, but we also had, in many cases, the mills and mill owners giving land uh, to particularly Baptist and Methodist groups uh, for churches, the mill church, if you will. And, of course, the idea was that uh, the since the churches were beholden to the mill owners for uh, their buildings and the land on which they stood, they would not do anything about the working conditions in the mills. And here we're talking about um, a community that's, that in terms of mill workers, that's predominantly white. Mm -hmm. um, because for many years, blacks were prohibited from working well, in the mills until, by law. Until, until after World War II. Yes, yes. Uh, but if, if you owe uh, the, the church and sometimes even a subsidy for the, the minister's salary to, to the mill uh, company, the mill owners, they're not going to be talking about working conditions. They're not going to be talking about wages. They're not going to be talking about issues of social justice. They're not going to be talking about uh, how, in some ways, this is a, um, a, some folks have called it almost a kind of, of waged slavery, if you will, because it was a, created a world out of which it was very difficult to break out. For many years, um, Folks suggested that Pentecostalism took root uh, as it did uh, when we had the emergence, say, of the Fire Baptized Holiness Church, in, which was organized actually in Anderson, 
initially with nine different groups coming together, that folks were drawn to this because the Pentecostal experience and style compensated, if you will, for the the, the dreariness and drudgery of the, of the life that, that folks experienced in the mill. I don't think folks buy that anymore, and I certainly don't buy that. Right, now, now, why was the experience so different? You know, again, a lot of folks out there may not be experienced with the Pentecostal. Is it because of enthusiastic worship? What's, what's, what are we looking at here? Well, what I think is, in some ways, that the, the Pentecostal experience, and it's not just the enthusiasm in worship, it is something like experiencing a different kind of power. And we talk about it, H. Richard Niebuhr, in his classic book uh, on the social sources of denominationalism, probably set the tone for a whole generation to misconstrue this as when he labeled all of this the religions of the disinherited. And I, but I would suggest to you that, that for example, the experience, say, of speaking in tongues, that, 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 that's, that's a power that if I've got, I've got a power, if I can do that, that you don't have, even though you're the boss man at the mill. Uh, or I've got a superior power if I can can lay hands on you and 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 you can be healed. Uh, that's superior to anything that you have, even though you may control uh, the store where I can buy my food or and all of that sort of thing. So I I really see that that part of the appeal of Pentecostalism, uh, particularly in the the mill culture as it develops in the post bellum South. Uh, and particularly in the upstate and the midlands and to the upstate of South Carolina has to do with with offering if you will something which which nobody can take from you it's a it's a power that is not of this world and it's superior to anything and the folks who go there to Pentecostal churches know full well that they don't have power in the in society and in culture and 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 they don't have the same kind of authority, perhaps, that uh, the mill owner has. But they've got something superior, something better. And it's not simply a, a compensation. It's they know deep down inside the same way that, uh, if I can draw an analogy, the same way that that um, we know that, that, that African-American slaves understood Say a call to to freedom from not only sin but from the bondage of slavery. That they had something that that was better, that was superior to what uh, the folks who who enslaved them had. In Pentecostal styles of of uh, religious experience, people have uh, a power, access to a realm of power that is superior to what the power that subdues them in their, their daily life. Well, uh, when Pentecostalism got started in South Carolina in the late 19th century, some of it was biracial, was it not? Some of it was in, in urban areas. In Columbia, for example, we've got some biracial groups. But what happens uh, actually is individual congregations may be biracial, but when they begin to coalesce into denominations, once again the race card comes into play and the the, the denominations tend to organize more along racial lines. Okay. Chuck, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Charles Lippy on how the Civil War transformed religion in South Carolina. Now, Chuck, we've, we've gotten to almost the 20th century, but I want to back up okay. to the war itself and talk about religion during the war, both for the men at the front and for the home front, because I know you've done some work on that as well. Wasn't there a tremendous revivalist movement that, particularly in the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's Army, in the in sixty two and sixty three, there was indeed, and and this is a story that is still, uh, in some ways, waiting to be told in all its fullness. I think uh, we know that there were 
uh, many efforts to try and uh, and convert the soldiers so that they would become men of God. The the work of the the military chaplains and evangelists who went to, again, particularly to the Army of Northern Virginia is the one we know the most about. Uh, but there were on several occasions. Um, revivals that swept through the camps and i suspect that part of the reason for for that happening actually was because there was religion offered a sense of hope and we forget how how horrible the conditions were for the 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 fighting troops both north and south during much of the the civil war how desperate people were just to to survive uh, more people were dying from disease than than from <laughs> anything inflicted by by uh, by the you know wounds and so on in in many cases uh, where could you turn and, and here was at least a hope that that it in when when all seemed to be lost there were, there was something else that that could could fill your life and give give life meaning uh, so yes, we had uh, folks going to to the the battlefront, uh, clergy going as chaplains, and of course the the most famous it wasn't a chaplain, it wasn't the Episcopal bishop who actually um, became a Confederate leader, Leonidas Polk. Yes, <laughs> actually, when I was in the army and stationed at Fort Polk, Louisiana, in Leesville, Louisiana. The Episcopal Church was Leonidas Polk Memorial Church. That's very unusual for Episcopal Church, but that was— It would be, yes. Well, the soldiers and hope, the home front, the descriptions of congregations in the South, and I'll just use those in Columbia that I'm familiar with, they talk about churches being packed during the war— which you also, if you go back to World War One and World War Two, you have the same the same thing. But there was a very interesting comment. It was made by an English visitor who attended Trinity Church here in Columbia during the war. He didn't like the music at all, by the way. He thought it was too short. Oh dear! That's for you, the musician. But he said the church was packed, which pretty big church. You're talking about probably two or three hundred people then. And he said almost entirely women because the men weren't here. South Carolina, remember, sent virtually every able-bodied white male between 18 and 45 into the, into the service. So they are there, and they're the ones who are dealing with the daily casualty lists that are being brought into town, Charleston, Columbia. In Greenville, they were read out loud at the railroad station. So it's the women who are having to deal with this back home. But women had also had always outnumbered the men anyway uh, in in participation in, in worship and uh, in attendance. But I suspect this is part of what enabled the women after the war when some men do come back to start forming women's organizations, as I suggested earlier, that helped change some of the gender roles that, while they are there at at worship and filling the pews, they are also uh, kind of making sure that everything keeps keeps running and keep, keeps going, and they're not willing to give all of that up after after the war is over. Um, but I think the relationship between religion and violence, which was really what we're talking about when we talk about connections between religion and war is a very profound and, and deep one. Uh, and uh, there is a sense in which when one confronts the, the violence and the horror of war, uh, there's simply no way to understand it. So we look for something that that is beyond, something transcendent. And I think that in some ways the churches had a very difficult task during the, the war between the states um, because they are trying to deal with families that have been divided north and south, it's it's something which, which is penetrating to the very soul of 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 who people are, and here is a, a way in which we're trying to get some hope, some some courage to continue to to go about the business of life and to to look for 
for a, a tomorrow that we can build that will be better. Of course, it is women after the war who really spearhead the development of what becomes the lost cause, the Monument Associations, Confederate Memorial Days. And while they were going to church, there's still a lot of bitterness and anger. Emma Kant, who was a teenager here in Columbia, when she talks about the enemy, the phrase, how I hate them to the very depth of my soul. Now, she was a good churchgoer. But there's, there's that you have, to, you have to factor into religion after the war, right? Well, and this is, again, part of what I think kept um, not only Southern identity alive. Let me lift this one level higher. Um, denominations which had split uh, prior to the war remained divided much longer in fact, in some cases, over a hundred years, and in part because of the the, the bitterness that that was there, the the divisions that that were evoked by the religious sensibilities being torn asunder endured much longer than did other kinds of of regional division. So uh, the. The experience of the the women, um, I'd I'd like to probe that a little bit more, actually, because I I think that that uh, we also know that it's, it's women who, while while they may have bitterness and and hatred for for quote the enemy unquote, we also know is is the women who spearhead some of the moves against lynching and against some of the worst dimensions of the of the segregated society that follows in the South. If you look for progressive reforms in urban areas of the South, they, whether it's for hospitals, public libraries, schools, child labor reform, that's all going to come from the women in the community. It's not coming from the men. Absolutely. Or, or what we call the city mission movement. Uh, in, Although that's not all that big in, in, in South Carolina, it's more in places like Atlanta and Birmingham, but we have some of that, that to provide some kind of, of education for, for, for children, some to deal with, well, actually, one of the things we ought to mention here as a consequence of the war is the number of orphanages that, that begin to be formed. And a lot of that, comes, the impetus comes from, from women as well. And there was a little concern, by the way, with, with some of these efforts of, of women that um, they were a tad too liberal. Yes. And if, to go back, actually, since we mentioned the WCTU a while back, when some of the, the leadership of the WCTU began to call for women's suffrage and so on, and it was perhaps going just a, a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. Well, Chuck, earlier we were talking about Spartanburg County, alcohol being the leading cause of death among white males. And we were talking about the male culture, and we got into Pentecostalism, but we sort of lost track of why there was all the, if you've got Pentecostalism, why is there all the drinking going on? There's always a paradox as one of the themes, I think, of of Southern religion. And um, let me me add one other point here, because I think that see if I can bring them the two together. One of the ways in which um, before the war folks had tried to justify keeping the churches out of the debate over over slavery that came primarily in Presbyterian circles was the whole idea of the spirituality of the church, as it was called. James Henley uh, Thornwell at uh, Columbia Seminary, which was actually in Columbia at that time, and Benjamin Morgan Palmer and some other folks are particularly associated with that. But what it did basically was to see that the the role of the church had to do with individuals and individual behavior, and not so much with with, with things of society, uh, whether it be be slavery or um, uh, the subjugation of, of of workers in the mill village and so on. 
But there was also a way in which some of this was honored more in the breach than in, in the keeping. I have to tell you a story. When I first moved to South Carolina back in 1976, I had to, to buy a new car. And I went to a car dealership in, in Easley, and the, the, the person who was working with me asked me what I did for a living, of course. And I, I said, well, I, I was a religion professor. And he responded, well, he said, I'm a Baptist. Well, in South Carolina, I would have guessed that, since some folks have said there are more Baptists than people in South Carolina. But he said, some of my family are, are Bible-toting Baptists, and some of them are bootlegging Baptists. He said, I'm from the bootlegging Baptist side of the family. So I decided, you know, perhaps he was an honest car dealer. I bought a car on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we've always had this this sense of uh, a, a sense of paradox. Well, let's go to the mill village and the control of the mill villages. The owners did not want the men to drink. I mean, if if you go back to Greg establishing Graniteville, he actually forbid anybody. If you if you got caught drinking on his property, he fired you. Mm. And. I interviewed a while back, uh, had a conversation with a young author, John Seeley. He wrote a, a novel about the whiskey baron. It had to deal with mill workers, and this was in the 1920s during Prohibition, and the open avenue they had to alcohol through through friends and, and the local whiskey baron uh, weren't supposed to be drinking in the mill village. But right outside the mill village, there was a place where everybody could go, and get the best bootleg in, uh, fictionally, it was York County. Well, we, we also know that alcohol consumption in that period was much higher across the board than it even is today mm-hmm. uh, throughout the, the United States, not, not just uh, in, in the South. But I think you alluded to something, Walter, that, that's an important point here, and that is that that some of this and the whole idea of the spirituality of the church, it once again has to do with the matter of control. Mm-hmm. And some of it is how do you assert control over over other people and try and establish lines of power and authority? And one is by, by regulating behavior. And certainly if you identify uh, not so much social sin, if you will, or uh, have a social ethic, but individual sins with a, in the plural, uh, then you're talking about things that you can attempt to control and regulate, even sometimes if you turn your head the other way, uh, when, uh, if you will, the folks that, that are part of your group are, are indulging in that sort of behavior. One of the causes behind the rise of Cole Blees, which people, they just want to say, well, he was a racist and what have you, is it was a rebellion against those in control. They did not want mandatory schools. I want to be able to have my kids work in the mill. You can't tell me what I can do with my family. We don't want your reform. They actually fought things like health reform. And Blees said when they were beginning to require physical examinations before kids went to school, he said that if any any man shot a physician who examined his daughter, he would pardon him. I mean, and you get such comments from the mill villages, we don't want you fancy card-playing ladies coming down here and telling us how to live our lives. So part of that progressive movement was to regulate the lives of what we're gently referred to as the lesser folk. Chuck, we've been talking about how the Civil War transformed religion in the South, and that's going to be the topic of a program you're going to give here in Columbia in October at Ebenezer Lutheran Church. You want to talk a little bit more about what you're specifically going to cover? Well, actually, uh, I've I've given away most of the big points in in our conversation. Uh, because I'm going to suggest that the uh, the race card, the gender card, and transformations are are all the two most important ones. The allowing Pentecostalism to take root with the mill culture is a, a third major impact, um, and. I think the most enduring one is what we were kind of playing around with in, in, in our last few comments, 
And that is the way in which an individualistic ethic gets implanted very deeply in Southern religion. And you, in some ways, echo that when you talked about don't let anything, you know, I want my children to do this. You can't tell me what to do. Uh, that we still see in South Carolina and beyond South Carolina that religion is very much an individual matter that has nothing to do with with the larger world around us. Um, and if we, there's a danger when we give a social ethic to religion that we have to start tampering with, with social structures and political structures that might be um, problematic when it comes to issues of justice and fairness and equality. But if religion is a matter only of the soul, the individual soul, it's a whole different question. You made a comment about honor in the in the breach. For many years, you know, many of the counties in South Carolina were dry, and people used to to laugh that it was the churchgoers and the bootleggers who went to the polls to keep the county dry, because of course that way the one was for a moral reason, the other was for an economic reason. Well, well, yes, and then even after that, you know, the question was whether. You spoke by name to, to the folks you, you met at the liquor store when you could finally buy something because you weren't supposed to be doing that sort of thing. See, today I, I seriously doubt if many people remember that at least two mainline Protestant denominations, Presbyterians and Methodists, were supposed to be abstainers. They were supposed to be. Baptists were. That was part of their religious ethos. In fact, going to Davidson, I can remember fellows coming from back when Davidson was all male from North Carolina towns talking about, yeah, you weren't supposed to to drink, but we we always knew so-and-so was an over-the-sink Presbyterian, which meant they had their little shot glass and they would... Or medicinal purposes only. Medicinal purposes. Well, one of the ways in which you see that in in, in popular culture, actually, if you remember the the TV show the uh, the Waltons, with, with the Baldwin sisters and and the the recipe, where they had a code name for it, uh, and here were genteel women who were imbibing, and they actually had their own still, if you will. And I, but again, I think you know the the other side of that issue is is what I keep going back to, and that is if you have laws on the books. They're there so that you can control the people you want to control. And I, I think we ought to to be, be open and, and say that part of what was going on was that this was a white effort uh, as well to, to try and control a free black population in a segregated society um, because we created this sense that that it was going to be the the African-American male who would go berserk in terms of his behavior and assault the pure white woman uh, if he had a, access to alcohol. Uh, so we, we we play two games at once with, with this individualistic ethic. And one is... Uh, one game is that that we can can talk about and label sins very nicely and turn our heads the other way, and the other is we can avoid dealing with social problems. In the 1890s, the WCTU was very powerful in South Carolina. Actually, voted for prohibition, and when the bill got to the state senate, Governor Tillman decided we're not going to have prohibition. We're going to have a state liquor monopoly, and so the the Prohibition Bill became miraculously, on its next reading, a bill to establish the dispensary system, which became one of the biggest sources of corruption and immorality South Carolina has ever had to face. Talk about contradictions in terms. Tillman had the power. The dries, as they call themselves, in the General Assembly were horrified, but they didn't dare buck Governor Tillman. And I think in some ways... We still live uh, in the 21st century with the legacy of all of these things, Walter. Um, It it may not be in dries versus wets or prohibition and and dispensaries, but we still live with the legacy of of how do we deal with a multiracial society? How do we deal with issues of gender? How do we deal with 
with with issues of 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 behavior how do we deal with with control um and what are what are the boundaries that we want to set we those are human questions chuck alfred's given me the the wind up signal so any last words for our listeners before we sign off today my last word would be that uh the past lives on into the present, and, and the, the changes that came as a result of the Civil War still not only inform but haunt the religious life of South Carolina in 2014. So you buy the haunted South as opposed to the mythical South? Well, I, I, the haunted South and the mythical South may be almost exactly the same thing. Okay. Charles Lippy, author of religion in South Carolina. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. And thank you for having me, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Chuck Lippy is an old friend, and I'm very familiar with his books. But today's program took a turn that, quite frankly for me, was a little bit unexpected. Yes, we talked about revivalism in the armies in the Confederacy. We talked about the impact on the home front and the years right after the war. But Professor Lippi wanted to make it quite clear that the impact of the American Civil War on religion in the South and South Carolina wasn't just a one or two year effect. The war had an effect on religion in South Carolina for a half century or more. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's Journal are their own and not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.